The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the party arrived in the southernmost foothills of the Kazmirioth, the River of Iron completing the first leg of their journey to the Arleguar. They had a literal run-in with an elven scout named Cinder, who crashed into Harl while fleeing from a bugbear. Eredine dispatched the bugbear and Geryos tended to Cinder's wounds. Later, the elf told them that he had been sent on a reconnaissance mission by his people's elder. The elder, he explained, was a seer who had felt the presence of what Sindur first called an abomination, and then later, something evil and of undeath. The elven scout gave them his thanks, water skin, and some valuable directions before running off to resume his mission. Chapter 29, Part 1, Day 30, Late Morning, Elevation, 3,000 feet above sea level. At sunrise, Anatar, Hayward, and the other iron-skinned dwarves quickly got up, packed their few belongings, checked their weapons, and resumed their march into the foothills. They did not pause to break their fast, and, if they had discussed it, they would have confirmed what they had already suspected. None of them had really slept much. An hour here and there over the course of the night, but mostly they had been awake. Furthermore, none of them felt the least bit tired. Of course they did not discuss it. They always walked in silence now. Presently, Anatar was standing atop a boulder, looking into the distance, much the way Harl had several days before. Like the other dwarf, Anatar was getting his bearings and making guesses regarding direction and distance. The sun was fairly high in the sky by now. Yesterday's rains had given way to a fresh and sunny morning, not that Anatar cared. He looked down and saw that his shadow, cast behind and below him over the surface of the boulder, was flickering unnaturally, flickering the way a candle flame might. This was something he had noticed earlier this morning. It was a phenomenon happening to all of them, though it did not seem to be occurring in anything other than the dwarves. Clouds cast their shadows, as did the occasional bird. The rocks cast theirs, too. But the iron-skinned dwarves did not, not normally anyway. Theirs flapped like flags in the wind. There, not there. There, not there. It was the oddest thing. How very, very strange, he muttered to himself. The sound of his own voice was alien, too. Now that they had reached the foothills, Anatar felt uneasy for new reasons. 
Once again, it seemed as though his prey was slipping from his grasp, and this time, there was no plume of smoke nor cry of a woman to provide a direction. Looking at the vista of hills, and the nearby little groupings of trees, and beyond that the twinkling line of the sea, Anatar thought that his quarry might be anywhere. Sure, they had probably headed east, and so his group would do the same. But the number of places to hide, the different paths they might take, there were so, so many more variables, and he knew his chances of finding Harl's group was fading, fading like shadows in twilight. As his hopes for success waned, Anatar heard the voice of his conscience growing louder. He was not an honorable dwarf. Objectively, he was not honorable. He had ambushed the stone carver and his fish-eater friends at the nest of the Dolai Anir, and now he hunted a group of fugitives that included a dwarf that was barely more than a child, and his orders were to kill them all. Perhaps he should turn back. Perhaps he should disband his group and simply wander off into the mountains alone. Or he could go south. He'd never seen the ocean. Hayward climbed up on a boulder nearby and peered off toward the ocean. The other dwarf scanned the terrain below, slowly, from right to left. Anatar wondered if Hayward was having similar thoughts. No, not a chance. Hayward was a... The whistle and thunk of an arrow striking flesh. Anatar looked over and saw Hayward with a white feathered arrow protruding from his forehead like a unicorn's horn. The other dwarf wobbled on his feet, and then his eyes rolled back into his head, showing only the whites. Hayward fell to the ground, stone dead. Instead of jumping off the boulder and seeking cover, Anatar foolishly spent the next few precious seconds scanning the nearby trees in the direction the arrow seemed to have come from. If he had jumped, he would not have been such an easy target for their unseen assailant's next arrow. The hidden archer was skilled. The shot should have taken Anatar right in the heart. But the arrow meant to slay him passed right through his chest, coming out on the other side of the dwarf as though it had hit nothing more substantial than a pillar of smoke. Before we continue and catch up with our party members, I need to make a few quick rolls. For weather, a five. We'll call that an unpleasant, dark and overcast day, cold and dreary. Stumble upon. 18. Almost a result that time, but not quite. Only a one or a 20 will indicate anything there. Wandering encounters. Three. There are none. There's no need to recount day 30 in a narrative. A summary will do. Sunrise to sunset sees the party moody and preoccupied, with the dwarves unable to escape their worry for their loved ones left behind in Dwarvar. They decide not to forage for food, but to press on until they grow hungry, and by day's end have used half of their water. When night comes, the sky is unbroken velvety black. The new moon provides no light, and the stars are obscured by clouds. Umura discovers that the Branabil glands that she had collected back in Gruenmog's shrine have lost their luminescence, and so she discards them. The party keeps the same night watch shifts as before, and the next day wake up to a one. Extreme weather. The dark clouds overhead turn black. A peal of thunder rips through the sky, waking everyone before a dawn that looks barely different from night. A bad storm is brewing. Let's finish the rolls for the day to complete the picture. Stumble upon. A five on a d20. Wandering encounters. A two on a d6. 
nothing to report. Have you ever wanted a podcast that tackles the hard questions? Like, why do wizards wear those pointy hats? Is it morally okay to burn your name into a table? Is there a difference between dead and never waking up? Well, if you've ever wanted to know the answers to any of these questions, then I have a podcast for you. We are Goblets and Gaze, a bi-weekly Pathfinder 2E podcast. Join our cast of an angsty barbarian, a pyromaniac goblin, a girl whose family loved astrology a little too much, a cultist, and a hot topic reject as they journey to a lost city and try to keep a twink alive. Follow us all on your social media at Goblets and Gaze, join our Discord as well, and we hope to see you out there. Goodbye! Chapter 29, Part 2 Day 31, Late Morning Elevation, 3,000 feet above sea level Party Status, Harl, 16 of 16 hit points Eridine, 12 of 12 Gyrios, 21 of 21 Umura, 13 of 13 Ursulith, 4 of 4 Spells Available Umura has memorized Shield Light and Levitate Gyrios has taken Cinder's advice and prayed for Protection from Evil and Cure Light Wounds Knowing better than to head for the protection of trees, the party searched desperately for some other shelter. They found a suitable refuge just before the rains really started coming down hard. They'd hoped for a shallow cave or a recess in the rock face. Instead, they found a huge granite wedge sticking out of the earth like the prow of an enormous ship. Crouching under it, they were mostly safe from the lashings of the storm, except when the wind changed direction and doused them with cold spray. It soon became clear that the torrential downpour would not permit any travel, and so the companions resigned themselves to a day of sitting and listening to it hammering down all around them, drowning out the sounds of their grumbling bellies. Moods soon began to flag. It wasn't even noon before they started complaining. Ursula slipped in a puddle while pacing back and forth. When she recovered, her face was stricken. Oh, Uncle, I feel so useless. I can't do anything at all. I can't even walk in a straight line. Nonsense, dear. Nonsense. Never say such things. Harl put his arm around her as they made their way back toward the others. Oh, my stomach hurts, moaned Umora. After all we've been through, after all we've survived, to think we might starve to death under this rock. The magic user pressed the palm of her hand against her navel. Whatever gods have written our fate, it's hard to imagine that they care very much for us. This last bit was meant to irritate Gyrios. The magic user was in a mood to pick an argument. When no reply came, she baited him directly. Gyrios, what does your religion say about destiny? Is the future written, or is all experience just the playing out of some unkind cosmic game? Gyrios recognized Umura's intent, but answered anyway. Mazagar does not decide your fate, Umura, nor mine, nor anybody else's. Fate, destiny, whatever you might call it, is a myth, a superstition, an illusion. Are you so sure of that, priest? asked Umura. She was getting ready to do a little intellectual shoving. As sure as I am of Mazagar himself, yes, completely sure. Let me explain. Consider. If our fate is already decided, then we mortals have no free will in this life. We are simply characters in a story. 
whatever choices you think we make are not choices at all, just the illusion of agency. Is that what you are, Umura? A character in a story? No, I think not. Just because you do not wish a thing to be so, that does not make it untrue, retorted Umura. I feel that destiny is real. Things happen for a reason. What are the chances of us having survived this far? No, I don't accept that everything happens by mere chance. Girios shifted his position. It was hard to get comfortable, seated as they were, against the angled rock. Umora, I am sure you would agree that there is such a thing as good in this world and such a thing as evil, would you not? Umora recognized this as an old cleric's trick, so she hedged. I accept that they exist in a relative sense. What's your point? She did not like taking the defensive in an argument. Only this. If you accept that there is good and evil in the world, then you have already agreed that fate is an illusion. How so? Simply this. If fate is real, then you and I have no free will to choose our actions. If we are not free to choose our actions, then we cannot possibly be considered good or evil. No more should we call this rain evil for getting us wet, or this wind for making us cold. Umura frowned deeply. She was not accustomed to being bested in an argument. She made a dismissive sound and rummaged in her bag for the snakeskin book, her only reliable refuge and escape. Girios, his competitive nature now awakened, did not want her to retreat so easily. How many times will you read that book, Umora? You must have been through it two dozen times. I'll read it another two dozen if I must, she sneered. I'll read it until I understand every word. Now, give me some peace, Girios. Girios rolled his eyes in contempt, but his ire soon dissipated. Beating back Umora's attack had given him no satisfaction, and he felt simply unhappy. He turned to Ursuleth. She was idly drumming her fingers against the rim of Girios's old shield and humming to herself. Ursuleth, perhaps you could raise our spirits. A song? A poem? Anything to take our mind off things. Ursuleth quickly shook her head no, uncomfortable with the idea of singing to strangers outside of the context of an official performance. Oh yes, please, offered Umora. She knew herself well enough to recognize the bad faith with which she had goaded Girios, and she felt guilty. Here was a chance to lighten the mood by agreeing with him. And besides, her book was getting wet. Give us a song, and let it be a good traditional dwarven song by all means. Eridine agreed. Even Harl seemed keen to hear her sing. Go on, Ursuleth. You've been looking for a way to help. Well, here's something you can do for everyone. Something nobody else can do. Please, it is sure to raise spirits. flashed bright white as lightning struck somewhere not far off, and thunder cracked and boomed across the sky. Either the gods were very pleased, or very displeased with the performance, it seemed. There was another flash. Something was out there in the rain, and yet another flash, accompanied by a deafening peal of thunder. Did you see that? asked Umura. They all had. A face in the rain. 
strobing in and out of the darkness with each bright flash of lightning. Lightning lit the air once again. A second face. And then yet two more. Closer now. Dark, dark faces with white hot eyes. The four figures glided toward them through the pouring rain like risen spirits. Chapter 29, Part 3, Day 30, Late Morning, One Day Ago. After the second arrow, Anatar leapt down from his vantage on the rock and took shelter. Hayward, with the look of shock still written across his face, lay dead beside him. He stared up at the morning sky, an arrow shaft protruding from his forehead like a strange antenna. Anatar looked at the other dwarves and motioned with his head beyond the boulder to where he thought the assailant must be. In silence, the five of them loaded their crossbows and waited. Then they waited some more. Nothing happened. Anatar thought of several curses. He had lost the desire to speak, perhaps even the ability to speak. No matter, the other dwarves would follow him. He got ready to dash out of cover. They would charge their unseen attacker. Anatar could feel the others gathering behind him. Unsurprisingly, he felt no fear in what he was about to do. He didn't feel much of anything lately. Immediately, he marked an arrow, speeding toward them, and he changed course, strafing left. Now he could make out the archer, just 60 feet ahead and semi-hidden in the brush. The gap was closing, and the archer was readying another shot. The shot was taken, and another arrow flew into their midst. He heard this one connect as another iron-skinned dwarf went down, sprawling face-first to the rocky ground. Anatar did not break stride, but continued to rush ahead. The archer was clearly visible now. It was not the human fish-eater with the bruised neck as Anatar had thought. In fact, it was not a human at all. Abruptly he came to a halt and went down on one knee. He raised his crossbow, but the face was gone. He fired into the bushes anyway. He listened for an ensuing cry of pain, but heard nothing. Anatar rose back to his feet, whipped his hand axe from his belt, and charged into the bush. Branches that should have scratched his face instead passed right through him, but he did not stop to ponder why. The other three dwarves caught up just then, and the quartet spread apart, with melee weapons drawn, hoping to flush out the thing that had attacked them and then disappeared. After a few minutes, having found nothing, they regrouped and headed east being sure to stay close to natural cover as they went. Whatever had attacked them did not make another appearance that day, and the group continued eastward, unhindered. A very dark night followed, in which they found no need to stop and rest, and so carried on, all through the night, cautiously watching their flanks and rear. The morning brought with it a storm of immense raw power. Rain fell in sheets and waves, soaking them to the skin. Still, they felt no need to stop. If the rain was not enough, thunder boomed and lightning forked, capturing the world in a tableau of blackest black and whitest white by the instant. They walked blindly on, with no spoor or trail to follow. It was therefore, against all odds, that they heard a sound, the sweet sound of a girl's voice, singing, and it led them right to their quarry. Chapter 29, Part 4, Day 31, Late Morning. 
Elevation, 3,000 feet above sea level. Party status. The party status has not changed. By now you will have guessed that Anatar and the surviving members of his team are not the same dwarves they once were. Their leader, Barak Ironskin, has brought a curse down upon his entire family, and possibly on the entire High Forge. This curse will affect different members of their family in different ways, depending on the power, alignment, and honor they had when the curse befell them. In short, they have been turned into demi-shadows. A demi-shadow is a homebrew monster that is, from one instant to another, either a dwarf or a lesser form of a shadow. The shadow is a monster listed in the BX rules with an entry so short, I'll just read it right here, making a couple of small adjustments. Shadows are incorporeal, ghost-like, intelligent creatures. They can only be harmed by magical weapons. If a shadow scores a hit, it will drain one point of strength in addition to doing one to four points of damage. This weakness will last for eight turns. Any creature whose strength is reduced to zero or less will become a shadow. Shadows are immune to sleep and charm spells. They are not undead and cannot be turned. They have an AC of seven. All four dwarves are level one with... I rolled a one, so they'll min out at five hit points. In shadow form, they will have the same number of hit points, even though technically shadows are two plus two hit die creatures. These are lesser demi-shadows, something a bit different. What makes them interesting adversaries is that they flicker between corporeal dwarf form and shadow form, alternating each round. Anatar, since he was directly involved in Barak's plot, has become something a bit nastier than the others. I'm giving him double hit points, so he has 10. When in dwarf form, the demi-shadows have an armor class of 5 and do weapon damage. When in shadow form, they have an AC of 7, but they will be immune to non-magical weapons and will attack as normal shadows for 1-4 to four points of damage plus the strength drain ability. All things considered, this bunch might well spell real trouble for the party members, but let's see what happens. Entering combat. Round 1. First we need to see if the party is surprised. Anatar and his kin cannot be since they had been following Ursula's voice. The roll. A 6. Not surprised. In this first round, because the two groups are 40 feet away from each other, melee will not be possible, so it's just missile fire and spells. Initiative. The demi-shadows. A 3. The party. A 4. A lightning flash illuminates the space outside their shelter. Four dwarves stand at the pouring rain, crossbows raised. Other than that they were making no attempt to get out of the storm, there's something not right about these dwarves. A feeling of dread. Gyrios thinks fast, remembers the words of the elf Sindur, and casts the spell, Protection from Evil. Mazagar, watch over me. Next, Umura casts her spell of Shield on herself. It will last for 20 minutes and provide her with an armor class of 4 versus melee weapons and 2 versus missile weapons. Eredin fires one of her 6 remaining arrows at them. In order to see if she hits, I need to determine if her target is in corporeal form or not. I'll roll a high-low. High is shadow form. Low. He's corporeal and has an armor class of 5. Eredin therefore needs a 13. The roll. A 1. Her bowstring has slipped off the poorly made bow. Perhaps it got wet. She will miss her next attack. Parl charges the other dwarves, but he will not reach them until next round. He'll try to put himself between the crossbows and Ursuleth as he runs. Now it's the Demi-Shadow's turn. They fire their weapons, one shot on each PC. Anatar fires at Harl as the bushy-bearded dwarf rushes toward them. 
unslinging his axe. Anatar needs a 15 to hit Harl's AC of 4. Another 1. Another critical miss. The lightning flash has temporarily blinded him. Another demi-shadow fires at Eridine. It needs a 14. 12. A miss. The quarrel explodes against the rock behind her. A third dwarf fires on Gyrios. With the spell of protection in play, it needs a 17 to hit. I've rolled a 10. Lastly, a bolt is sent Umura's way. It will also take a 17 to hit due to her shield spell. A 13 misses. Round 2. Both parties, except for the two who critically fumbled, now draw handheld weapons and enter melee combat. Initiative. The Demi Shadows. A 4. The party. A 3. The Demi Shadows go first. Anatar, temporarily blinded by the lightning flash, will miss his turn. Next is the Demi Shadow on Harl. We determined that it was corporeal last round, so this round it will act as a shadow. It flickers into a hazy black shape and reaches out with its left hand. The creature needs a 15 to hit. A 14, a claw made of nothing but darkness almost connects, but Harl recoils in time, horrified and confused. What? What's happening? Another demi-shadow attacks Gyrios. A high-low roll is needed to determine its current state. High equals shadow. High, shadow form. Gyrios is faced with the same terrifying shock as the dwarf winks out of existence and is replaced by a wraith-like creature. A 17 will hit. A 4. What in Mazagar's name is this thing? The last one attacks Umura, who has made the risky decision to join the melee in order to keep Gyrios from having to fight two attackers at once. The high-low roll is... Low. This one is corporeal and rushes her, swinging an iron mace. A 15 will hit. A 6 misses. Now it's the party's turn. Harl swings at the dark thing in front of him. He needs an 11 to hit its AC of 7. A 12. That's a hit but Harl's mouth goes slack as his axe passes harmlessly through the creature. For a moment, he just stands there stupidly before saying, No, by the stones, they can't be hurt. The demi-shadow laughs in his face. Gyrios might be about to discover the same thing. He swings his flail. A 12 is needed to hit an AC of 7. A 14, a waste of a good roll. The ball of his flail passes straight through the creature as if it were made of nothing more substantial than air. It cackles along with its brother. Eridine will miss this round as she recovers from her fumble. Umura's opponent is corporeal. She might be able to hit him if she can roll a 12 or better. An 8. She's just not that much of a fighter. Her thrust is easily parried by the skilled warrior. Round 3. Initiative. The Demi Shadows. A 4. The Party. A 6. Somehow, the companions throw off the shock of seeing the demi-shadow's true nature and continue to fight. But for Harl and Gyrios especially, sheer panic is not far off. Harl, by instinct more than anything else, brings his axe back in a desperate low backhand. A 13. With Harl's strength bonus, this is just enough, and he catches his opponent's knee. Because the shadows alternate between corporeal and incorporeal each round, Harl's opponent is now back in dwarf form. 8 damage. Harl's blade shears through the flesh and bone that was not there an instant before. Leg is separated from knee. The dwarf goes down screaming with blood spurting out the stump and arcing through the air like a carnival ribbon. By now, Eredin has pulled her short sword and enters the fray, meeting Anatar in the middle. She faints and thrusts. 
A 14 will hit. Nat 20. But wait a second. We still need to determine Anatar's state before we roll for damage. This will be the last high-low roll. High indicates shadow form. A 4. Anatar is just a dwarf when Eredin's trick thrust connects. Critical hits do max damage plus a die, so this could be the end of Anatar. A 5. That's 11 points in one hit. Eredin's blade plunges into Anatar's left eye, piercing his brain. The dwarf makes a keening noise and does an odd jerking dance at the end of her sword before falling to the ground, dead, but still twitching. I've said this before and I'm sure I'll say it again. This is not how I expected this fight to play out. In fact, recently I've been thinking about mechanics for fleeing and pursuit because I did not see how this fight could possibly be won. But there's two demi-shadows left and the fight isn't over yet. Gyrios begins to back toward the rock wall. He sees an opening and takes his shot. A four. No, he's far too freaked out. Umura has backed up even further while her opponent presses her and flickers into shadow shape. She's witnessing the bizarre transformation for the first time, but with no better options, she slashes with her dagger. A four. She's overcome with fear, pathetically cutting the air in front of her and hoping in vain to keep the approaching thing at bay. Now it's the demi-shadow's turn. With two of their number down, they will need to make a morale check, but shadows have a morale of 12 and these two remaining iron-skinned dwarves are in shadow form. So 12 is the number I'll need to roll on 2d6 for them to flee. A three, far from afraid. They're just beginning to enjoy themselves. They feel invulnerable. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, please consider spreading the word on social media or leaving a rating or review on the podcatcher of your choice. I'd like to read one of these great reviews right now. This one is from Midnight Rogue. Midnight writes, Absorbing dark fantasy narrative with dice rolling to advance the story and resolve situations for the characters. Great use of old school role-playing mechanics with clever adjustments that support the evolution of the characters of the tale. Themes recall the best of the early days of the RPG hobby, but the podcast succeeds in delivering something very fresh and engaging. I'm thrilled that my efforts to capture a whiff of nostalgia are working out. Thanks, Midnight Rogue. My thanks also to those whose voices make the story come alive. Kirsty Wilson as Ursula Stonecarver, and Aaron Velamuri as Anatar Ironskin. Thank you very much. You can catch up with Aaron on his blog at angleshot-woes.blogspot.com. Those of you who use social media can find me on Twitter at Manticore Tale and on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. You can also reach me by email. My address is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also maintain a blog, taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, maps, art, character sheets, random musings, and other stuff. The adventure will continue on the next Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Welcome, adventurers. Draw near and listen to tales of heroes and villains. That was the last Yonef saw of Ortival as a blur of movement pulled Yonef's attention back to the left. Yonef ducked a sword slash aimed at his head. The blow missed so narrowly that he felt the blade clip the top of his helm. Of friendship and laughter. She eats like a pig, Rianok said. Mela froze. Sarkeesian slapped the back of the halfling's head with an open hand. A rare smile split Colfin's brown beard, a low chuckle following. Of sorrow, 
and loss. There was no reply. Irwin stood, leaned over Byford's motionless form, gently listening for breath. Get your weekly espresso shot of fantasy on iTunes, Spotify, and many other places where podcasts can be found. Come join the adventure and listen to... Tales from the Dungeon.